The idea of a computer taking on a mind of its own is a sci-fi fantasy most of us are pretty familiar with by now. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Hopefully, some of this stuff will stay a fantasy. But I think we can all agree, technology is getting smarter. It's getting better at understanding us. We can share our feelings with Siri, and we can ask Alexa to tell us jokes. This is largely thanks to advances in something called natural language processing. That's on today's brainstorm, how technology can understand us and even think like us. And while this opens the door to all sorts of innovations, it's also riddled with problems because thinking like a human isn't always a good thing. Hi everyone, I'm Michal Evram. And I'm Brian O'Keefe. So Brian, did you have a sense for what natural language processing was before this episode? I did, Michal. And like most things in this world, I knew about it because I edited a couple of stories about it, which gives me just enough information to be kind of dangerous. But my basic understanding is that natural language processing is a way of teaching computers to understand language and therefore to access information. Well, I too had a, a basic understanding of what this is, but it's been a few years since I covered it. And I actually, I did a story uh, years back about Watson, IBM's Watson, when that was kind of a fledgling technology. And I remember they were telling me that they fed Watson the Urban Dictionary and it didn't go that well because Watson couldn't differentiate between what was appropriate and what was inappropriate. And I think that's part of the point here. How do you teach human language to something that's not a human brain, you know, with all of the nuances involved? That is a great question. I want to bring in another voice, our colleague, Jeremy Kahn, who's a senior writer at Fortune. He'll be our guide on today's episode. And here's the thing about teaching a computer to understand language. You have to get it to read and read and read. That's right. Yes, you're having it read a lot of text and from that to try to draw inferences about how language works in general. It is reading anything that is available on the internet, which at this point is pretty much everything. So, you know, it's everything from the Bible to classic works of literature to uh, there's quite a lot of stuff from Reddit uh, threads, which has been problematic. But uh, whoever's designing these systems can have it read more or less. You can kind of define what it reads. The problem is the less it reads, generally the less well it performs. So the best systems have been the ones that have been trained on basically the entire text of the internet. That's a wide range, the entire text of the internet. You know, you've got Reddit threads and Bible passages. So I'm just wondering, Brian, how does this translate to actual applications that are being used today? Yeah, I mean, one of the most obvious applications is in the chatbots that we all interact with on the internet now and which are getting more sophisticated all the time. But Jeremy says that the technology is starting to show up throughout the business world. One example is right now, if you're a law firm used to hire, you know, tons and tons of recent uh, legal graduates, and you deploy them uh, reading vast troves of documents, let's say, in a, in a complex uh, merger. All of this stuff was, you know, incredibly time-consuming, labor-intensive. It, it drove costs in a big way. Now, a lot of this work is done by legal technology software using natural language processing. So, uh, you know, it's changing the real world in, in pretty big ways. Michal, I think a lot of people, when they hear that, are going to immediately think, 
hey, are the computers coming for my jobs, my nice, uh, secure white collar job? You know, because this is going way beyond just a computer searching for information. This is a, a system that is reading and actually thinking. So, Brian, you're saying that my job's in danger? Well, your job would never be in danger. But it's funny that you would say that because there's actually a system, a model called GPT-3 that can write as well as read and not just transcribe dictation. It could come up with its own material. There's lots of examples of it doing just an incredible job. You can sort of fine tune it to write in the style of someone. So you could, you know, prompt it with a couple lines from Hemingway and then have it go off and it would write something that would be a, a pretty good kind of imitation of Hemingway. Okay, so Brian, I think the next logical question is, can you do your best Hemingway impression? In the fall of that year, we asked the AI to read the internet. The AI read about legal trials, and it read about programming information, and the AI even went fishing. All right. I am going to be scared when AI systems can do better impressions than Brian O'Keefe. I fear that the computer actually does a better Hemingway impression than I do. No way. But leaving that aside, these models do have plenty of weaknesses, and they actually come up with some pretty crazy stuff. It's not very good even now at, at sort of trying to get it to come up with metaphors that necessarily make sense. So you could kind of prompt it with like the sun, you know, was high in the sky like a, and it just doesn't come up with something that makes any sense. You know, it's like it comes up with it comes up with something like bizarre, but or that sort of works like a like a big bottle of ketchup. It's like well, okay, sort of like sort of really, but I don't know. It's not it's not great. All joking aside, there is a huge amount of money being poured into the development of these systems. GPT-3, you know, was developed by OpenAI, which was founded by Elon Musk. DeepMind, which is a, a subsidiary of Google, uh, is one of the leading players in this. And there's a reason that the big tech companies are really getting involved with this technology because... Natural language processing, understanding language is the way to unlock all information in the world and understand it. So there's a huge financial opportunity for being the best and being first at mastering this technology. Michal, do you think that there's room for you know startups and, uh, and new players in this game as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned OpenAI, the developer of GPT-3, and just like the name implies, it's open. So there are a lot of smaller innovators that are, you know, jumping on this and really innovating on top of this technology. So I recently spoke with one of the co-founders of one of these companies. It's called Pencil. His name is Will Hanschel, and he's based in Singapore. And he says Pencil uses algorithms to generate ads. Um, he says they can be made very, very quickly and very cheaply and that they work. So the approach we've taken in building an AI company is to take an existing workflow, which is the creative workflow in an ad agency, for example, um, and start to automate lots of different pieces of it to make that whole workflow faster and easier. So one of the pieces of the workflow that we started to automate was copywriting. We now use technology that's been built by OpenAI over on your side of the pond, GPT-3. It's an extremely capable language model, and it is able to write copy of all kinds. We use it for writing ad copy. Uh, we have models that make sure that the video is oriented correctly inside like a portrait or landscape so that the right stuff is on screen. 
Um, we have algorithms that slice video into scenes and then kind of allow you to kind of remix those scenes and tell new stories from the video. Um, so all through the process, there's interesting things going on. And that's how we're able to generate a finished ad that's kind of original and new uh, in just a minute. What does it mean for the AI to actually write the copy? For advertising, there's two ways that we control it. One is by giving examples beforehand. So we would have given it lots of examples of product or brand descriptions and slogans and headlines. And it would have seen kind of how to derive a slogan or a headline from a description. And when you give it a new description, it writes a new slogan or headline. That's one way. What kind of ads result from this? Because I'm thinking like just these incredible ads that I see on TV campaigns. And I'd like I cry when I see a Subaru ad now, which this year is an emotional year. But what is the end results? What does a creative actually look like? And is it across different channels? Is it video? Is it audio? Is it written copies? How extensive and broad does it get? Yeah, so at the moment, the system generates a finished video ad, which is between six and 15 seconds in about one minute. So that includes the copy that's been written, the video that's been cut up into scenes, uh, the audio that's been cut, the branding that's been applied, the layouts that have been selected and the animations that have been selected and everything kind of strung together into a little mini narrative that makes sense. Uh, in about a minute. And each time you hammer that generate button, you get a whole new concept that is as different as possible to what you saw before. So you can kind of generate 10 times, 10 different outputs, and it will show you something different each time from the same raw material you provided. And if you make changes as you go, it kind of starts to converge a little bit on what you are, you know, the changes that you're making. So, you know, like a Photoshop has been used by thousands of designers for years and has never learned anything about design from the people using it. Whereas something like Pencil kind of picks up the cues of what you like and don't like as you use it and shows that back to you. I can definitely see the efficiencies here, the fact that companies can test more quickly and can you know, grind out creative more quickly and there are cost, obvious cost savings there, but is there a different problem that you were trying to solve here? So if, if I'm a copywriter or, you know, an art director in an agency and the agency adopts this tool, it means that day to day I'll spend less time, you know, in Photoshop or After Effects, moving logos a little bit to the right and making them bigger or whatever, and more time talking to my customer, my, the brands, about what their purpose in the world is, which is what great creative agencies strive to do, but clients kind of just want the Facebook ads a lot of the time. So AI is going to power all the below the line stuff that is very granular and optimized and small. And I think that creatives in agencies or in brands are going to start thinking about the big things that their brands can do above the line. Like this is what like Nike did with, with Kaepernick, right? Like they took a stand. It was purpose driven. It was even business model driven. This is what Patagonia did with the investment bankers, right? By refusing to sell them stuff. It's like, those are the kinds of big ideas that I think that creatives can have and push through and have the boldness to push brands to push through if they were not spending time grinding endless Facebook ads. And I'm sure you get this question a lot, but there's always the fear that technology is going to replace us. Is there greater risk there with what happens to the jobs that have been in existence in the advertising world up until now? Like Mad Men, is, is there not going to be any Mad Men? That's it? No, well, I think I, we think about this all the time. First of all, this is something that we think about a lot. Um, I think that ironically, the creative process, at least in advertising, has become more repetitive over time. Um, so it's not like, you know, Don Draper sitting in a leather armchair with a glass of whiskey, kind of just brainstorming, 
It's grinding out assets day after day after day. The intent behind the company, though, we called it Pencil because we wanted to emphasize that it was a tool and not a replacement. It's just a tool, right? It's just a piece of software that helps you generate ideas that maybe you wouldn't have thought of and do the boring kind of repetitive stuff faster. Do you see a day when this technology can actually be used for crafting, you know, the next just do it campaign? What I wonder is if a machine spat out some a line like just do it, would anyone care? Right? Like, w- would it have the same cultural impact? Because a machine can generate anything, you know, given enough time and compute, like you just keep reading what it comes up with. And some of it is just brilliant. And some of it is not. So I, th- I think without, you know, Nike putting that kind of cultural momentum behind it, and like, a lot of humans really buying into that sentiment, the, the line alone doesn't have much meaning. So I think, you know, something like OpenAI GPT-3 could write something like just do it today, right? You could, it easily could. The question is whether, you know, humans would jump on that as an idea and kind of run with it. We certainly hope the answer is yes, right? It's like the ideas have intrinsic value. It's just about happening upon them, discovering them as, as, as it were. Pencil is a really good example of some of the practical and effective applications here for GPT-3. But there's a downside to some of these technologies. And uh, as I mentioned earlier with the example of Watson ingesting the Urban Dictionary, you know, that's tame in comparison to the garbage that exists online. And you've got these systems picking up on all of it. So Jeremy has written a lot about the ways in which this can go wrong as well. These systems, because they're trained on everything that exists, yeah, sort of on the internet, including Reddit threads and lots of, even the books that you know they might ingest are books that have generally been published on the internet and therefore are no longer in copyright. So they tend to be older books. So there's a lot of very old ideas about race and gender that they might imbibe, and that could be problematic too uh, in terms of what these systems then spit out. You know, if you ask it to complete, you know, the doctor went to the cabinet, then blank took out the medicine, and you're looking for the pronoun, there's a much higher chance it's going to use the pronoun he, for instance. There is GPT-3, which is like one of the most powerful uh, natural language processing systems out there, it turns out if you mention headscarves or explicitly mention somebody who's Muslim, there's a much higher chance that it will use language that will depict that person as violent in some way. And that's like a known problem with it. There's all these other problems that people think it probably has around kind of racial and gender bias. So that's still a big problem with these systems. Michal, this is really a naughty problem with AI in general, because when you look at the web, really, you're seeing all human experience. You're seeing, you know, the best of humanity and the worst. And how does the computer kind of sort through that and make sense of it and develop its own system of morals and ethics that we would be excited about and not horrified by? Yeah, this is a a huge problem problem for companies that are adopting these technologies, and not just on the natural language processing side, but also for images, image recognition. You know, there's been a lot of issues with bias. And you would think that they're sort of preemptively figuring out how to make sure that they're launching this responsibly, but it is a massive, massive problem. Michal, how many languages do you speak? Okay, let's see. Uh, how are you? Kif halek? Como ça va? Ma 
Four, although I would say three. Arabic, I, I know very little, but I can say a few things, mostly food related. What about you, Brian? I knew you were smarter and more sophisticated <laughs> than I was. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty much, um, I'm not proud to admit it, but I'm pretty much monolingual, except for some of the high school Latin that I sort of vaguely remember. And this is another way in which AI is getting smarter than I am, because natural language processing is actually now being used in translation itself. Here's our colleague, Jeremy Kahn. Increasingly, these systems are much better at, at this, uh, particularly in, again, because a lot of it depends on how much data you have to train it in what they call well-resourced languages. So if you're translating between two languages that have a lot of material available on the internet, like English and German or English and French, it does very well, uh, English and Spanish, for instance. Um, but if you pick an obscure language like, uh, you know, Burmese or something, or even, even some of the Eastern European languages, Slovenian, uh, you, you still find that the systems don't perform as well as a human uh, would. For the more common languages, though, there's a lot of business interest. And our next guest is working in this exact field. Jesse Shemin is the CEO of a company called Papercup, and you can think of it like real-time dubbing. It's basically a really, really fast translation service, but it's not just processing information from one language and transforming it into another. It's also bringing it to life with a human voice. Tell me about voice translation technology. What was the problem you're trying to solve here? So I, I look at this both technically and commercially. I mean, if you rewind a good two, three years, there were some good systems out there like Alexa and Google Home. But the problem was that a lot of the voices that you can generate synthetically didn't really sound so human. They sounded like a robot and was quite clear. And that's what we wanted to solve for technically. Could we make voices in other languages similar to the original people that also were voices that they were willing to listen to over the course of a 5, 10, 15, 20 minute video or podcast? And then commercially, nothing existed. So if you uploaded a video onto YouTube and it was in English, you would struggle to reach six and a half billion people. Same thing if you were uploading a new audiobook. And so commercially, that's what we wanted to solve for as well. A product that actually allowed creators or content owners to exhaust the value of every piece of content that they created. How much of a technological hurdle is that to not make it sound robotic and synthetic, but to actually make it sound like a human and to make it sound like me? Yeah, so so it's tough. We're, I think those are actually two variables that or vectors that we actually think about quite often, which is, A, how do you make it sound indistinguishable from human speech? And then secondly, how do you make it sound like the original person, like Morgan Freeman? Does it actually sound like him, but in German? And secondly, it also means do you capture the way in which they express themselves? So if I'm really angry in the moment or if I'm very happy, can you capture that? And we're basically trying to make progress on all three of those fronts. Some are more important than others. But there are certainly technical hurdles that have not been solved to an extent that they are now mass distributed in the world. That's certainly the case. So as somebody who grew up watching Marty McFly dubbed into Hebrew and Arabic, I have a big appreciation and interest in this. But I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what are the obstacles particular to any particular language or is it kind of one size fits all? A, it's, I guess, a function of data, of course, as it always is in machine learning, as in, can you get the diversity, the quality, and the depth of the data that you need to train a system to understand all the subtle nuances of speech such that you can then create a model on it and then generate that voice convincingly in the target language? And then also the similarity between languages. If you've already anchored a system on Spanish, it might be easier to generate 
a language that's comparable to that. Whereas if you go to something far more foreign, let's just say Swahili from Spanish, it is a technically different challenge, not one that's insurmountable, but it's definitely a, a different problem, which is also equally, even in terms of demand and the commercial sense of it, it's also a different equation, which is why even when you look at what Netflix will dub Stranger Things into, they have content strategy teams that try to determine what is actually the best mix of cost in terms of what they're willing to stomach to actually dub something versus what's the anticipated demand and uplift in subscribers. And that's a very calculated equation, which is why even most studios themselves are limited in the number of languages that they can dub into, which is often probably call it five to 20 on the high end, but there are 50 languages with 20 million speakers. How do you check the accuracy on the natural language processing side and the AI voice activation side? Because there are different steps involved here. Quality matters, right? Because you can't rely on the equivalent of a Google Translate to actually generate output that you can rely on, which is why we've also built our own what's called human in the loop product that allows native speakers or translators to actually quality check a video, amend the actual translation, make any other customizations or manipulations that are required to get the output to the intended quality. And how many languages are you currently supporting or working on? Yeah, it's probably around four or five languages, each of them to different degrees of quality. And this is really just down to a function of capacity and demand because we can do it. We know we can because we've actually trained our systems on uh, a smaller volume of data and, and in a faster period of time than we've seen even tech giants do it. Um, but we speak to our customers. So whether it's the Sky News saying, you know, they've re never reached Spanish markets before and there are something like 525 million Spanish speakers. That was a major language that we wanted to launch in with them. Same thing with a handful of the other clients. But beyond that, we've had demand for things like the, the usuals of Portuguese, French, German, uh, Italian, which is where a lot of content is dubbed into. And then more recently, we've also had a lot of demand for the likes of Mandarin, Japanese, and things like Hindi. Can we listen to a few examples? Yeah, absolutely. Something cool, by the way, I can actually now show you a sample translation from the podcast that we're on right now. What I'll first show you is I'm actually going to show you a recording of what we've already said. So this is going to be in English, and then I'll play you the Spanish version of us. Okay, so tell me about voice translation technology. What was the landscape before you built this company and what was the what was lacking? What was the problem you're trying to solve here? So I, I look at this both technically and commercially. I mean, if you rewind a good two, three years ago, if you look at the state of what's called speech synthesis or text-to-speech systems, there are some good systems out there like Alexa and Google Home. Okay, great. And this is the Spanish version of us. Cuéntame sobre la tecnología de traducción de voz. ¿Cuál era el panorama antes de crear esta empresa? ¿Y qué faltaba? ¿Qué problema están tratando de resolver? Lo veo tanto del lado técnico como comercial. Quiero decir, si retrocedes hace dos, tres años y observas los llamados sistemas de texto a voz o síntesis de voz, había algunos buenos sistemas como Alexa o Google Home. And there you have it. My voice, or the recreation of my voice in Spanish and of yours in Spanish, they sounded very believable, very human. But it didn't sound like us. What we found, at least in the state that we're in right now in terms of content translation, that you actually don't need it to get 
to sound exactly like the original person, but at least something that's within a close proximity is good enough for now such that people will actually happily watch the content. I think we'll eventually live in a world where there's now so much translated content as well that actually mimicking the uniqueness of somebody's voice is important. But for now, we think just getting actually within a close range of somebody's voice is sufficiently good such that people are more than happy to actually watch the translated content. Michal, if I could understand Spanish, I think I'd be pretty impressed with that translation. If only it was that easy to learn a language. <laughs> yeah, you've added another one. I do find this super intriguing. A couple of years ago, a VC told me that this was coming and uh, you know, it seemed like too good to be true, but it seems to really be arriving now. I have to admit though, on the other hand, even though it would be really useful to somebody like me who doesn't speak Spanish or French, you know, beyond hola, it does feel a little bit like cheating. And then another aspect of it too is that there's translating the actual words into vocabulary words, but that's different from having the full context of what someone is saying and getting all the references. As a person who speaks more than one language in your own house, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the nuance of language, that's something that I just you know, as good as these translation services get and natural language processing gets, I, I just, I don't know what it would take to crack that. You know, the, the test is comedy, right? Like, is French comedy funny to you? Is is Israeli comedy funny? Is it just American comedy? And that's, that is a big, not just language gap, but cultural gap. But that said, I think that these kind of applications and technologies have so much promise and not to get too feel good on us here, but... I really think that watching content from other countries, you know, in a in a way that you can understand it really opens a lot of doors. So there's that. That's the silver lining. That's the bright spot here in my view. We'll have to learn how to say kumbaya in 50 languages. You could just ask GPT-3, Brian. That's it for today. Join us next week for more talk on how tech is reshaping our world. The Brainstorm Podcast. É uma produção da Fortune Media. Our show is produced by Wyatt Orm. Und bearbeitet von Wyatt Orm und Nicole Vergara. A música de Brian Campbell, da Signal Sounds. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. <laughs>